Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners in Nebraska and other places to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in California, and I'm joined with my co-host and friend Liz Felstrin in Jerusalem. Liz, how are you today? Hi, Alan. Doing well. How are you? I'm good. So today we're recording it Sunday, and it's Yom Yerushalayim, uh, Jerusalem uh-huh. Day. Uh, it's been in the news quite a bit. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that uh, issue or, or just in Jerusalem in general. Um, I think it's a good topic for us since it's a, an interesting day. And Jerusalem is an interesting city. It's one that you live in right now. It's one that I lived in for a while, and it's one that's always on people's minds. Um, um, it's definitely an interesting city. It's a complex city. You know, sometimes I think we forget just how long the history of Jerusalem extends back. And I mean, especially in a year like this one, when, you know, you said that Yom Rushalayim was in the news a lot, right? It was in the news a lot this year because there were fears that it was going to be, um, have, you know, violence and, um, and that it was a particularly politically fraught Jerusalem day. And it's easy to think that that's something new, right? That it's, you know, Jerusalem used to be a more peaceful, quiet city. And while there's certainly been lots of ups and downs, I think Israel has always been a city with big changes and and complex politics, right? I mean, going all the way back as far as one can go back. Um, Why do you you think... Israel and Jerusalem in general have been the focal point for millennia for people. I mean, it just, well, we know it's the the seat of three monotheistic faiths, but it always seems to be um, in the news, uh, whether it's today, 100 years ago or 500 years ago, uh, is Jerusalem has always kind of been on the forefront of people's minds. Why do you, why do you think that is? I think that's a fantastic question, right? Because I think, you know, as important as it is and central as it is that Jerusalem is the sort of birthplace of the world's three major monotheistic religion, religions, it almost seems like that's not enough, right? Like there should be some other reason to explain why there's so much focus and so much attention on Jerusalem. I guess some of it has to do, yeah, with biblical times and strategic locations and it being the seat of, um, you know, major dynasties. Everybody was always fighting over Jerusalem, but I don't know why, why Jerusalem in particular. I mean, I live here, it's nice, but I don't really see why it's so different, right. Than any other place in the world, but it certainly seems to be historically. Well, it is a, it's a major attraction for people. It's also a great tourist spot. It's good food. There's good archaeology. Um, there's just a lot of history. And I think that if you like history, Jerusalem, Israel in general, Jerusalem is a, a place to connect with history. I remember when we were living in Israel in the 80s, and I'm going to just dig- digress for a second because we're talking about Yom Yerushalayim, and I mentioned last week that um, we're, when we're talking about cables, that the high wire artist Philippe Petit um, walked across the valley um, 
on Yom Yerushalayim Day. So as a celebratory event, now we see it more as a political event. And I think that that's kind of the challenge that we have today is that it's become more of a nationalistic rather than a celebratory event. Yeah, and um, and that's true, but I think that the reason why it could be an event that felt celebratory maybe a couple of decades ago and didn't have the political undertones or overtones, whatever they are, um, wasn't because they weren't there. It was just because Jewish Israel and you know, worldwide Jewry was doing a better job of ignoring what did it mean to to reunify Jerusalem, right? What does it mean to declare one's sovereignty over people who don't take the same historic view and don't have the same religious beliefs and might have preferred to stay under a Jordanian rule? Um Right? Don't recognize Israel as a country, let alone their country. Um, that complex narrative was was always there, but it, you know, as the sort of arc of history has been with all minority groups, it was ignored for a very long time, and and now more and more groups, even if they are. A minority find ways to make their voices heard and people are willing to listen. People want to understand the, the story from all sides. And I think that is why the same situation seems and feels more political now maybe than it did in decades past. Do you think part of that is also the, the attention that the coalition, this unique coalition, uh, in the government right now is taking shape with and that it's become a little bit more polarized of a coalition and that's reflecting out in society? I'm not sure that the coalition actually has had a direct impact on sort of what this Jerusalem Day feels like. It's not a brand new phenomenon, right? I mean, it's been a number of years that I think everyone who's paying attention at all in in politics has realized that there is something complex, if not problematic, about Jerusalem Day, Um, right? To celebrate the unification of Jerusalem as an all-good thing when you have people who don't feel like it's their Jerusalem and yet that's where they live is is difficult. so I don't know how much it has to do with the coalition itself. I think there were some fears that, as as would be the case with any newish government, but all the more so with this government that is so broad in terms of its, you know, political makeup. Um, I think there was some concern that if violence erupted because of Jerusalem Day, if there were rockets fired or riots or other types of uh, of violence, that this government would feel more compelled to respond, to sort of prove itself as not, quote unquote, too left wing or not too soft on terror or something like that. Luckily, so far, it's been a quiet day. Um, and so none of those speculations have, have come to fruition. 
Um, there was some of that talk, I think, specific to this coalition. Well, I think looking back a year ago, that's when Hamas started targeting Israel with rockets during the mm-hmm. day. So there's some tension that's built up around that. Um, I want to just close out a little bit of the conversation about um, the coalition. Anything new that you've heard about or followed with the coalition? It's in my mind, when I check the, the Israeli papers, there's always something about the coalition falling apart or this person backing out. What's What are you seeing? Yeah, so there's definitely still ongoing speculation of all sorts about if and when this coalition will fall apart, and who knows. Uh, but one of the things that I did see recently was a new poll that came out um, done by the Jerusalem Post, which has some, I think, you know, unfortunate results in, if we're looking specifically at social cohesion. You know, one of the things that came out of this study is that most Israelis, Arab Israelis included, think that this experiment of having an Arab party in the coalition has not worked out and should not be repeated in the future. And I think that's a very strong and unfortunate, in my opinion, statement, right? It's one thing if people feel like this particular constellation of coalition didn't serve their interests or didn't accomplish enough or didn't do what it promised it was going to do or all three of those things. But to say that the very idea of having an Arab party in the coalition isn't something that's worth trying again or shouldn't happen in the future is, I think, a shame and is really difficult, right? I mean, we're a country of 9 million people and 2 million of them are Arabs. It makes, I think, every sense in the world that plenty of coalitions could be formed that would have Arab parties in them. Why shouldn't they? Um, And the fact that most Israelis don't think that that would be good for the country is a difficult finding. So there have been Arab parties in the Knesset since the founding of the the government in in 48-49. But not recently. No, you know, no. no, but there have been members of Arab. Oh, in Arab, the government, yes, Arab, sitting yeah, in the yeah, opposition. Yeah, yes, yes, for sure. So, yes. so, you, so, my question then to you is: Has there been more power for them being in the opposition versus being part of the government? There's more power in in opposing versus being in support. I mean, it depends, I guess, how one defines power, right? whether it means actually making legislation and and making a difference or just being able to say no to all sorts of things or to make a statement by just by standing in opposition, right? And not being part of the ruling coalition. I guess that's a kind of power I I would think the former is a more effective kind of power, but maybe not everyone sees it that way. Well, they've traditionally had between uh, what ten, eight, and ten percent of the the seats in the Knesset, so ten, twelve seats, but not all in one party. And if you think about how oppositions work in terms of governments, we see right now that the 
the Likud opposition, you know, is creating quite an obstacle for the current government to really be successful. So if you're part of the opposition, your voice sometimes can be louder than if you're part of the unified government. And I think that might be what the poll is saying. Yes, I. it's true. I guess it's just a question of whether one wants to be loud or one wants to affect change. But well, yes, affect- there are some people who would rather just be loud. Well, I think that we've seen through history that just being loud sometimes uh, is better for individuals, but not for society in general. And to your point, I think that the coalition is about change. It's about making things better for the country and for the people. And if you're not part of the the government, then you're just part of the opposition and all you are is an obstruction to change. Um, again, I think that the coalition is almost a year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's last, we've talked about this before, it's lasted longer than most people projected. And the fact that it's almost a year old and that there are continued to be um, obstacles in front of it, but yet it continues to move forward, I think is a very positive thing. We just have to kind of see how much longer it'll last. Uh, yes. And, you know, what the next iteration of a government in Israel would look like, I think is surely anyone's guess, right? No one could have foreseen Israel going to four elections and then this constellation of parties coming together in exactly this way. I think that was totally unpredictable. And I think what could happen after this and what a government might look like is also totally unpredictable, right? It's it's so hard to know. And you know, because to a certain extent, it is a, a numbers game, right? It's getting to that 61, and there are a lot of different ways to do it. Sometimes there are no ways to do it, but sometimes there are a bunch of ways. Right, and, and when you have a government built on a coalition, there are always people who can change that number by leaving the coalition, and that's what the past several months have demonstrated with this coalition is that people keep threatening to leave or they come back, they leave, they come back until they get their voice heard. Um, but I, I think if I if I hear you saying that the country is kind of tired of elections, it's a reprieve for the people to have this coalition in power, even though it's not navigating in the most productive way possible because of the the dysfunction or the challenges from the opposition. I think so. I mean, especially coming on the heels of COVID, right? If you think about what was going on in the country leading up to the election a year ago that finally led to the formation of this government, uh, everybody needed that reprieve. I think that's a great word for it because how much instability and how many aspects of one's life can, can be tolerated. I think having a government and a budget was uh, a big sigh of relief for many Israelis and probably even for some for whom this government would not have been their first choice, right? Just knowing somebody's in charge somewhere, okay. Um, but, you know, if and when the time comes and we have to go to elections again, we will. We've got a lot of practice and uh, and we'll know how to do it. That's no one will have forgotten where their polling places are. That's a great way to put it country and practice of, of elections. Can I circle back a little bit? We started talking about, you know, Jerusalem Day. There used to be a phenomenon, I don't know if it still exists, called the Jerusalem Syndrome. Are you familiar with 
the Jerusalem syndrome? I, I am familiar with the Jerusalem syndrome. <laughs> Do you think we're suffering from the Jerusalem syndrome by focusing on on it as a, a country so much or as a city so much that you know what is what is the power of Jerusalem? Besides yes, the, so, besides the well, technically, I guess it could be a little hard to check if it, we are suffering from Jerusalem syndrome because it's not actually a fully recognized uh, psychological phenomenon. It's not listed in the you know diagnostic and statistical manual of uh, psychological disorders, but it is very well documented in other places. Um, I read about what I think is one of the very earliest cases of Jerusalem syndrome, which was a, a medieval mystic who was making her way from England to Israel to Jerusalem. And as she approached, she felt that she heard God's voice, which is often one of the ways that Jerusalem syndrome manifests itself. And she almost fell off her donkey and then the other people helped her back on. Um, and that's, you know, one of the, the main ways that Jerusalem syndrome presents, right? It's either hearing God's voice or thinking that one is God or thinking that one is a prophet or a, a Messiah. And, um, you know, this is a pretty rare occurrence in the grand scheme of things, but I think some level of out there slash unstable mental, you know, um, feeling in Jerusalem is, is more widespread. I mean, you know, religious fanaticism and zealotry from all religions exist here and have forever. Um, so it's more than a, an obsession or an interest. It's a, a psychological empowerment of belief that um, you're special and connected to Jerusalem. The syndrome? Yeah. The syndrome is like really, a, yeah, the syndrome is a mental illness, right? The syndrome is somebody standing on the street corner. I mean, it's not just I'm feeling a little extra religious today. It, it's a real psychotic episode. But I'm saying that, you know, beyond those small number of examples of people who are really having some sort of psychotic break and hearing God's voice or thinking that they are God, I think there is a more widespread incidence of people who are um, fanatical about their, their religious beliefs in a way that, you know, you or I might say is not healthy. Um, and is not productive, and 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 that's part of Jerusalem's history and part of Jerusalem's present, right? We, you talked about how so many people are drawn to Jerusalem, such as tourists and people coming for the food and people coming because they're interested in archaeology, and that's all true. But there are also an awful lot of people that come to Jerusalem because they feel compelled to you know, walk in the footsteps of that religious history in a way that um, that speaks to them on a daily basis. I don't know exactly where the line, I guess, between that crosses into something less stable, but it's 
somewhere. Does it get written a lot about? Are there psychologists uh, in Israel that specialize in this uh, phenomenon? I, I don't know. I'm sure it's been written about a lot. Whether there are people who specialize in it, I don't know. Okay. Well, I, I found I just found it to be an interesting uh, situation. I, I'm a. I'm not. Not that I'm obsessed with Jerusalem, but I really value Jerusalem as a as a location and as an environment. Um, so I, I just found the syndrome to be interesting. I, I'm going to shift one more time because um, the end of this week is the holiday of Shavuot. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking about food, I don't know if you've been looking at any uh, any dairy uh, recipes for Shavuot or other delicacies that align itself with the holiday? Um, I, that's a good question. I haven't seen too much just yet. I'm sure this week all of the cheesecakes will start to come out in full uh, array. And you know, the Israeli cheesecake is very different than the American cheesecake. The American cheesecake tends to be a, a baked cheesecake and a and a lighter sort of fluffier concoction the classic israeli cheesecake is more of like a pudding layered and whipped cream like a a heavier and not fluffy and and not baked type of cheesecake both delicious but uh, different different varieties so speaking of cheesecake so when i lived in israel my housemate um, created a business called Cheesecake, and it was very popular around Shavuot, and we'd be making cheesecakes 24 hours a day in order to provide the delicacy for people. And his, mm-hmm. he, had, he had a special recipe and a unique way of making cheesecake that made it different than other cheesecakes, but um, kind of a combination of what you described. Okay. It is a favorite okay. of many people. I, I, my question, though, is history, Ashkenazi history or connection to Shavuot is dairy. Do we know of other cultures, other Jewish communities that focus on other things besides dairy? I am. I, I don't know. I don't know. I will find that out. You know, there Obviously, the custom of studying Torah all night long is sort of universal. That's cross-denominational and cross-ethnic group amongst Israeli Jews. I am, but what foods look like in other groups, I will, I will have to check out. I mean, I think in general, Ashkenazi Jews tend to be more dairy friendly than other groups. I mean, p- joking about lactose intolerance aside, I think <laughs> I am the idea of having dairy, let's say for a Shabbat meal is even more foreign in Sephardic or Mizrahi circles than it would be in a Ashkenazi circles. I am, but how that translates on Shavuot, I don't know. I will find out. I think it's just interesting. So I'll let you research that and we'll talk about that uh, next week. Anything else you want to talk about or share today? Um, no, no. Just uh, hope everybody's staying well. And uh, even though 
Jerusalem is uh, in the news a lot, and maybe I gave it a bad rap by saying that we have a lot of uh, fringe groups here. I will also say that, you know, Jerusalem's a regular city like every place else in the sense that we have you know, schools and work and families and people um, living their life on a, a regular basis. And I hope that when people come as tourists, they find a way to sort of see those both sides, right? When I visit different places in the world, I like to find a way to see the regular life even beyond the sort of classic tourist traps. And I hope that people find ways to do that in Jerusalem as well. It's a great way to put it. And I think one of the things that we could talk about in the future is the old city versus the new city. And what does that really mean when you look at a, a city like Jerusalem, where the old city is filled with complexities as well. Mm -hmm. thank, you. thank you, Liz. Great seeing you and looking forward to our conversation next week. And for those of you, you've been listening to Israel Rebound, a podcast bringing interesting ideas about Israel to people in America.